I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. This week, as promised, on the show, we are talking about Cuba, but it won't just be me, so you're in luck. We did find a handful of folks who can also speak to their experience going on this trip. Uh, we went on a trip to Cuba over Thanksgiving break, U.S. Thanksgiving break, that is. Uh, really important distinction as a person in Canada to make on this podcast. Uh, it was uh, a great trip. We organized it through the Student Christian Movement Canada, the World Student Christian Federation U.S., and the MEC, or the basically Student Christian Movement of Cuba. We were there for about a week, and you'll hear all about it on this uh, this episode. Maybe a few contextualizing details that might kind of help you find your way in the conversation. We stayed with some Presbyterian churches uh, who hosted us in Havana, Cardenas. Uh, we went to Varadero, saw all kinds of different stuff. We went to the Fidel Castro Museum. We went to the museum of all the bad stuff the U.S. has done to Cuba. We saw lots of interesting people. We went to a nightclub, all this and more. Uh, and I guess you'll just have to ask some of the people on this episode to tell you more about those experiences uh, a lot of other folks went on the trip. It's unfortunate that we didn't get everybody on here. Maybe we'll have to do some more episodes. Uh, but one important piece here before we dive into it, you can donate to a fundraiser to this trip, and you should. People put up uh, their own money to go, and it was extremely helpful to them and to the folks in Cuba to do that. And we're trying to recoup some of those costs. So we'll put a donation link in the chat here. Uh, Matt, what am I missing here? No, you're not missing anything. Um it's a very cool episode. You should definitely give some money to WSCF uh, and you know specifically to the, the people who went to Cuba so they can recoup some of those costs. Um, it was so cool to hear about the experience of people who went to Cuba, but who are just like normal, who are not, <laughs> who are not us, you know? Um, <laughs> I feel like that's great. Uh, regular people talking about Cuba and how it impacted their lives. That's what you're going to get in this episode. And uh, that is what you should support. That's right. And we say this at the end of the episode, but I'm going to say it at the front of the episode, just so it's really in your brain. Uh, the WSCF US is extremely cool, and you should join it if you're in the United States. Uh, people ask us all the time, whoa, I'm a Christian, and I wish I knew other Christians who were good and cool. Guess what? There's a whole ton of them, and they're trying to get organized, and they're doing a great job of it. And man, if you really want to join something cool, I really think it's the thing to do. If I lived in the United States, I would be part of it without any hesitation or question. It rocks. You should get into it. 
one friend that we met in Cuba named Adiel. I've been chatting with him by WhatsApp. He asked me to send him some podcasts to help him learn English. I'm going to send him this podcast specifically, and this is a test, Adiel. If you are listening, you should send me a message on WhatsApp, and this is how I'm going <laughs> to find out for real if uh, if you've listened. All right, now let's go to this conversation. We are super excited this week to be chatting with some folks from a recent delegation to Cuba, uh, organized by the World Student Christian Forum or Christian Federation US, the Student Christian Movement of Canada. Uh, I tagged along on it for some reason, and uh, we met with the Student Christian Movement in Cuba and a bunch of other folks in Cuba, and it's really exciting to see all of you again. Uh, it's neat to just be able to reconnect. And there are so many questions. We want to ask what you thought about Cuba, what it was like to be maybe a Christian person navigating a, a different political and social situation, and we're going to get into all that. But we should start with some introductions, and I'm going to ask Aaron, you to start, just to introduce us a little bit to what the WSCF US is, which I think a lot of listeners will be interested to know exists at all, and, and in fact, they could participate. And then I'll invite Emily and Claire, uh, two folks who went on the, the trip as well. So Erin, let's start with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dean. And thank you for the invitation to be part of this podcast. We're really glad to be here. Um, but like you said, my name is Erin Hancock, and I work as the national organizer for the World Student Christian Federation in the U.S. It is a very long name. Yes, <laughs> we go by the WSC. Oh my gosh, WSCF US for short, um, as if that's any easier to say, but a little bit of background about the WSCF. Um, it actually has a really long and robust history. It was started in 1895, and it currently exists as a global ecumenical network of over 90 national student Christian movements around the world. Its aim is to support Christian students who are working for justice in their own communities and around the world. We do this uh, particularly with our movement here in the US by trying to foster community that is radically inclusive, providing opportunities for international and cross-cultural dialogue on various justice issues, such as U.S. imperialism, colonialism, ecological justice, queer liberation, and offering theological frameworks for connecting our justice work to our faith. So we have a lot of different programming going on. One of the biggest things we do is an annual conference of which you'll hear both Claire and Emily who will be sharing about um, our trip to Cuba. They both um, are a part of our student leadership team, which works really hard to plan that conference every year. Our student leaders are really the architects of our vision and strategy. So we're a student-led organization um, and we're in a period of relaunching our US movement. So there's been a pretty significant period of inactivity of the WSCF in the U.S. And about three years ago, the board, a group of senior friends and alumni who were deeply impacted by their own involvement in the student Christian movement and WSCF activity during their time as students, got together and decided it was time to relaunch something here in the U.S. And so I was fortunate to be the one they decided to hire to help do that. And through that work, I've gotten connected to Emily and Claire and a number of other really, really incredible students um, who really just make me feel like I have the best job in the world. Um, but one of the really unique things about our organization is being connected to this global network. And that is how we had the opportunity to go to Cuba because the WSCF also has a movement in Cuba. Um, they call themselves the MEC, the Movimiento Estudiantil Cristiano de Cuba. Um, I hope I got that correct. <laughs> um, 
And a while ago, um, and we were our, in our early stages of developing a relationship with the student Christian movement of Cuba, um, and they invited us. They said, you know, the best way to learn is to come and experience it yourself and see what our life is like and understand, you know, the impacts of the blockade on our day-to-day -day life, but also the ways that we are so incredibly resilient um, as a people and as a culture. And so we did. We took them up on that offer and we spent 10 days in Cuba in November and were really transformed by that experience. And so I'm excited to be here to talk a little bit more about that with you all. But that's a little bit about who we are. Thanks, Aaron. And uh, Emily and Claire. And I should say, too, Matt's here as well. It's a full house here in the Zoom. Um, but uh, <laughs> Emily, maybe I'm here, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's start with you and then Claire and then uh, Matt. I'll let you do the honors of asking a first really great, important, amazing question. Yeah, thank you. Well, I am so happy to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. Um, I'm Emily Carl. I am a member of the WSCF and I served on the student leadership team for two years. And it's been wonderful. Um, I've done a lot with domestic ministry across New England and the Midwest. And I specifically got involved with the WSCF because I wanted to do more with global Christian movement and engagement. And going to Cuba just provided that opportunity. And I'm still processing what a gift that has been. Um, in the, my day job, you can find me at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary as a third year Master of Divinity student. I also work at a local United Church of Christ church, and I'm working towards ordination with the UCC. Awesome. Thanks, Emily. Great to have you here. And Claire. Hey, Dean and Matt and Emily and Aaron again, good to be here. My name is Claire Kim. I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I've been a part of the student leadership team um, as well for the past two years with the relaunch in 2021. Um, I joined my first year of seminary and my program was just two years, but still an MDiv. Um, and so I graduated in June from Underground Seminary, which is affiliated with my church, Church of All Nations. Um, and so I'm no longer a student, but still part of the student, well, the World Student Christian Federation of the United States um, as part of the leadership team and was on this recent trip to Cuba. So excited to be here. Incredible. It is so good to have you all here. Um, Dean's been telling me about Cuba since he got back, um, but I'm really excited to hear what you will have to say about it from not a Dean perspective, from a from a non-Dean speaking person. Maybe you guys could tell me. Um just uh, what you were doing there. Why did you go? Um, what did you do while you were there? Three questions. I can share. Um, I really didn't know much about the Cuban context before going. Um, however, in the summer, I went to an ecumenical camp in Italy. And it was international. So I was there representing the US and North America. And I met the organizer for SCM Cuba there, Jorge, and we had been on Zoom calls together. I didn't realize he was going to be at that camp. And so that was really an exciting connection to make, along with another student who's also part of SCM Cuba. So that made me really excited to go on, the, on this trip, which I found out I was accepted to while I was in Italy. So we were celebrating together. And before the trip, I did a lot of rush documentary watching and some research to try to learn more about the context. But one thing um, that interested that interested me in going before the trip was um, being aware of the blockade and of the peak oil that Cuba went through, um, which is a concern for me 
as a citizen of the 21st century and running out of fossil fuels and kind of thinking about how that will play out in the rest of the world, including here in the U.S. Um, and so I was just curious about how people were dealing with that, um, kind of like a glimpse into the future. And when I went, I felt like that's exactly what I saw. A lot of people asked, Does it, did it feel like you went back in time because of the 1950s cars and all of those things? Um, and I keep responding, I actually feel like I visited the future, a post-apocalyptic one. Um, I keep coming back to this image of this stadium I saw while I was there. Um, big sports stadium, um, completely empty, abandoned, and there were cattle grazing in front of it. And I just think about seeing the U.S. Bank Stadium where the Vikings play, <laughs> imagining just like cattle grazing in front of that in like 20 years. Um, but yes, learned a lot there. I stayed four extra days um, than the rest of my team and stayed with some friends and feel like I probably learned the most while I was with those friends, just kind of about daily life. But yes, I'm happy to share more about that later. Kind of similar to Claire, I had an interest in going to Cuba because I had gone to Israel and Palestine in January 2023 with my seminary. And we had very intentional interactions with Palestinian Christians about the effects of the apartheid. And after traveling to the West Bank and learning more about U.S.-Cuban relations, the parallels between Israel and Palestine and the U.S. and Cuba were just so apparent. I mean, it's, it's almost a carbon copy of the playbook. And I think it is really important in this moment for Christians to speak out against imperialism of these mighty empires, mostly United States funded empires in the case of Israel. But I really resonate with what Claire said about seeing a vision for the future, seeing the communities that people have woven. I personally felt like I met the nicest people of my life in Cuba. I mean, there wasn't a stranger we met. Even when we were out with Mech Cuba, they ran into everyone they knew. We were just out on the street and they're like, oh, this is my friend. He's from this organization. Like, say hi, let's take some photos together. Um, and so it really, I really felt like, you know, we saw a glimpse of the beloved community. I think for me personally, Cuba has been um, something that I've wanted to learn a lot more about. I feel like I've always kind of heard about it through just like U.S. propaganda machine narratives and never really understood the full and true story of the U.S.'s relationship to Cuba um, until I started doing my research for this trip. And I um, am really just so grateful for the opportunity to have gone and actually learn firsthand from Cubans themselves, like what their story is rather than just, you know, take at face value what I've been told my whole life, which turns out to just be, you know, stories to uphold the U.S. imperialist agenda. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of some of like, I was going to say something else too. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, yeah. So you can edit that part out, but I think just knowing that there was a movement there that was a part of our WSCF network, um, it felt like our responsibility as um, a relaunching movement in the U.S. to start to develop that relationship pretty early on. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm really hopeful that this relationship will help inform our solidarity work moving forward. Um, I think, you know, as progressive Christians, like, 
you know, we have a job to live up to what we claim as our values and, and what we stand for. So I'm excited to actually um, have done this trip and be able to speak to some of the things that we saw and use that to inform what it means to actually have a real partnership that is rooted in, in friendship and solidarity with our siblings in Cuba. Thanks. It's uh, great to hear some initial hot takes. And uh, I also appreciate hearing from a non-Dean voice. I hear from my voice all the time. So it's nice to get some other uh, perspectives. Um, really interested too to hear uh, Claire and Emily kind of talking about the 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 two sides of that visit. You know, on the one hand, there's like these real challenges, infrastructural challenges, lots of huge kind of you know real economic crisis situations going on due to lack of fuel and many other things. And and to hear Emily too say, and despite that too, there are these kind of important webs of of connection and community and solidarity getting through that that situation. Um, I wonder if uh, maybe you could both uh, and all three of you talk a little bit more about like, um, you know, you, there's this trip going to Cuba, you heard about it, you decided I got to go, I want to go. Um, and uh, some maybe with more more background than others. Uh, what made you want to go to Cuba? And maybe what's something that you found there that was just a, a, a surprise to you while you were on the trip? Appreciate you raising that dichotomy there, because, yes, there were there are genuine economic concerns. Toilet paper for once. I did not realize prior to coming to Cuba that there would be a lack of toilet paper because of the blockade. And for those who have never been to Cuba, you travel with a roll of toilet paper in your bag. So when you stop anywhere, or even when you are at someone's home or at a church, you need the toilet paper because chances are they probably don't have it. And we would share toilet paper. We'd pass the roll to each other as we entered into the bathroom. So yes, I do want to agree and raise that there are genuine economic issues. We had a blackout we experienced at one of the churches. Um, and yet, and yet there are those webs of connection. Coming from the context of my church where we talk a lot about what the future will look like and what it looks like to return to a more sustainable way of being. Um, we really look to our indigenous elders um, to lead us in that. And I think, I think for me, I didn't realize that mm, the transition to a more sustainable, maybe even like indigenous way of life would be so difficult. I think you know, I'm I'm Korean American, and I thought a lot about North Korea on our trip. Um, as also a very like isolated state, and just thinking about in the past, people were able to live sustainably in the regions that they did without global trade, and so why can't we go back to that? Is a question I think about a lot. Like, why can't we just switch back to living sustainably like we did for much of our history? And I think I realized, like, we can't just go back completely because our world is interconnected and globalized in a way that um, is kind of irreversible in certain aspects. And um, so while I was in Cuba, I feel like I realized, oh, all of these modern conveniences that I take for granted that I actually don't, I didn't think about giving up, I suppose, in terms of returning to a more like natural way of life um people will still want those things in the future and we will still be like in an integrated economy and like international globalized world um 
So I think that gave me a lot more perspective coming from a place I think of naivete with that. Um, and so the prices of things were really interesting for me. Like I documented um, some things like a haircut costs about $1. So $1, the exchange rate for US dollars to Cuban pesos is $1 is about 250 pesos. And a haircut costs 250 to 300 pesos. My haircuts cost like $60. So like 60 times that. On the other hand, a carton of eggs, which you have to buy in quantities of 30, and you have to buy in an alleyway and not on the street because it's legal to buy not from not directly from the government. 30 eggs cost uh, 3,000 pesos, which is about $12. 3,000 pesos also happens to be the average salary of a Cuban. And that's not enough to survive. Um, my friends who I was staying with informed me that what would be more sustainable is 10 to 15,000 pesos, which is about 40 to $60. And so they have to supplement their income with side hustles. My friend takes scrap parts um, and refurbishes ceiling fans that he can sell to five, for five to 6,000 pesos, which is like almost double his monthly income. Um, and so I'm, I'm not super familiar with the details of how the government and economy are currently run, um, but I know that I think the black market is just a big part of everyone's life and they have to engage in that to make life work. Um, we passed a long line of people trying to immigrate to Spain, which you're able to do if you have documents proving ancestry or connection to somebody in Spain, which is a lot of people because they're mixed. Spain colonized Cuba. But if you don't have the papers, you don't have the documents, you can't prove that connection and you're not able to immigrate. So it's if you have more recent connections are the people that are able to go. And also, if you're not trying to immigrate or are unable to immigrate, the people are not having children. Um, that's another thing that I learned. So uh, it's really um, a crisis right now. And um, yeah, just learning like, it sounded like things were getting better under Obama. And then with Trump, things got much, much worse. And so that was something I was hearing while I was there. Yeah. And on that note of immigration, Claire, a lot of Cubans were telling a lot of older Cubans, I'd say those over 50, were telling us that one of the current issues is the um, immigration of young people who have a disillusionment with socialism um, because they're kind of seeing now with the larger private sector growing in Cuba, they're not seeing the prosperity that they want or that their parents and grandparents spoke about under uh, Fidel Castro. Um, and so the, emig the immigration of young people is. One of the main uh, problems that I heard over and over again spoken about. Yeah, it's great to hear you all talk about these reflections. I think it's really helpful to to hear you all processing it. I think it's cool. Um, seems like an impactful trip for you all, definitely. Um, and even hearing about the immigration issue is really fascinating. I mean, that's been a tactic, I think, um, <laughs> a, a tactic that the United States has uh, deployed in Cuba in a lot of different ways throughout history, actually, which is, I think, fascinating in itself. Um, Emily, you mentioned a few minutes ago 
about the comparison between, you know, the United States and Israel when it comes to Palestine or Cuba. And I think that's a really interesting observation. And I guess I wonder how you all feel <laughs> as people who belong to the United States in one way or another. Um, I don't I don't know exactly how you would feel about that. But um, wh what was it like to be, you know, uh, a person from the Imperial Corps off on the periphery to a country that is, you know, actively being blockaded by the United States? I am a person with uh, Mayflower Pilgrim heritage. My English ancestors have been in the continent of North America for 400 years, and I have had a long time to wrestle with that, sit with that, confess to that, and work for reconciliation and reparation. And I carry with me every day humility and the need for God's grace, because I, I carry with me a legacy that I will never fully atone for with my own human hands. And so when I have gone to places like the West Bank, to Cuba, the, I, I, care, I know and I feel the privilege of being a white American, of having European ancestry. I recognize it. I'm incredibly mindful of it. And I do whatever I can to not perpetuate harm or perpetuate a small amount of harm as possible. And how did it feel? It, I was, it felt how I feel every day. I, I try to do my best with whatever I can and fully knowing the history and identities that I carry with me. That's a really great question. And thank you for your response, Emily. At the end of our time together, I wrote a statement on behalf of the U.S. and on behalf of our movement in the U.S., uh, just acknowledging um, the harm that the U.S. has caused Cubans uh, over the last century, <laughs> more than a century, honestly, um, from the week that we spent going to museums, including the memorial of i'm not sure if the english translation is denunciation or denouncement but it's a whole museum dedicated to documenting the attempts of the u.s to take down covertly um the cuban way of life whether it's through assassination attempts biological warfare troll farms um or the blockade um, just documenting the impact of all of that. And so learned a lot there and learned just from people's own stories of their lives, um, the personal impacts that have been experienced um, due to the effects of the blockade. Um, and so prefacing that apology and acknowledgement for all of those things, I express gratitude for the ways in which all of our hosts and friends there treated us as kin, treated us as friends and family, as distinct from our government and its policies, um, but treated us as brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ. Um, and so just expressing gratitude for that and then going on to confess that even still we are complicit as you know citizens of the U.S., in these policies and the and their effects um and so i think it's important to be able to 
navigate both of those planes of consciousness at the same time where you can acknowledge like these systemic injustices um uh at the personal level at the individual level without centering individual guilt or shame with that knowing having the perspective that it is a systemic issue and so yeah i felt like it was really important for us to just acknowledge acknowledge everything that they told us because i think in the u.s the u.s would just deny everything um because they tried really hard to make it covert and to not be officially associated with all of these attempts um, to bring Cuba down. Um, so that was a really meaningful moment for me. And uh, for folks maybe who don't know, this uh, memorial that Claire's referring to is is really powerful. It's like there's exhibit after exhibit of uh, different explanations of just, for example, like CIA plots to to kill Fidel Castro, but also like bloodstained clothing from victims of U.S. terror attacks and lots and lots of really affecting kinds of, of things. So, yeah, and and it was powerful when uh, when we were able to read that uh, apology that Claire had written. And uh, I want to thank you, too, for that gesture. I think it was really meaningful to our Cuban friends and comrades as well. And, uh, and their response was also uh, still in that kind of um, means of, of embracing and, and uh, as Jorge, the the leader of the MEC, had had said, quoting uh, Jose Marti, um, he would would give us a, a white rose, you know, not a not a rose with thorns, and really powerful kind of reflection. Uh, Aaron, I want to pose that question to you too, as somebody who's kind of responsible for shepherding or collecting or organizing or whatever verb you'd like to use uh, this movement in the United States, the solidarity movement. You know, what was it like for you in that role? Also kind of maybe learning a bit about uh, how people are, are doing something similar on the, the other side of the imperial fence. Yeah, thanks, Dean. Thanks for that question. Um, it did feel like a big responsibility <laughs> to be taking this group of students um, into a country that there is just so much, we have so much history with and so much that we still don't know and each of us still has to learn. Um, and so it was a bit overwhelming uh, for me personally, definitely some nervousness and anxiety just about how it would go to travel with this group of young people, uh, make sure everyone's safe and, and healthy and also that we learn what we need to learn while we're there. And I think I was just the whole time kind of holding this mixture of emotions of like a little bit of like nervousness and anxiety around those issues, but also just like being overwhelmed with gratitude uh, for this group that has invited us into their home, into their country, into their communities to help us to learn, to walk alongside us in our journey, to be better friends to them and better partners and solidarity. And it was a very um, interesting tension and an interesting combination of emotions to just be holding in, in my body all at once. And thinking back to Claire was talking about the Memorial de la Denuncia, um, being in that space and reading those statistics of the attempted assassinations against Fidel Castro and really, as Claire said, just really shutting down the entire Cuban way of life and, and doing community and um, 
it was a lot to stand in that space and alongside our Cuban siblings and comrades and have them still just treat us with so much kindness and just it there's not really words to it um it was a lot a lot to hold but ultimately i'm just so incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be able to to go and experience this with this group of young people and even just hearing claire and emily's reflections today um you know i'm getting new insights and takeaways and i think this is going to be an ongoing conversation for us as we continue to process our experience um and continue to learn and better understand our role um, as christians because one thing we haven't really mentioned yet, but I do think is important to mention is like, you know, we're obviously not the first Christians that are like interested in Cuba and like getting involved in solidarity work and justice around Cuba. Like there is a long history of uh, ecumenical groups, um, particularly from the United States also that have been involved in this work um, for a very long time. There are Christians in Cuba who have fought for their space in the Communist Party and the socialist movement. Um, and so we're really just following in that legacy of Christians who are, you know, coming from a place of seeing this as part of our our call, part of our, you know, what our faith tells us we have to do. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's all of those things. <laughs> really like how both of you mentioned that testing the water's intention, but ultimately getting to community because. So many people want to sit around the fire holding hands singing Kumbaya, but in order to get to that point, you need to be vulnerable, you need to be daring, and you need to be willing to transgress boundaries and, and get to a place where you're willing to push aside or push forward with the problems right in front of you and get it out in the open and be willing to reach across and attempt relationship with those differences in your face. Aaron, just a minute ago, you were saying that, you know, you're not the first Christians to ever been to Cuba or interested in solidarity. And that's true. Okay. But yeah. But also something really unique about your trip, or at least it strikes me as being unique, is that, you know, you're there as, you know, the student Christian movement from the U.S. And you're meeting, you know, your counterparts uh, in the MEC in Cuba. Um, I wonder how that interaction and, I don't know, exchange, how does it change the way you think about the role of the student Christian movement? And um, I don't know, how do you want to be in that movement differently now that you've been there? That's, that's a good question, Matt. And I'm happy to start and would also love to hear Claire and Emily reflect on this as well as our actual students in this movement. But I know for me, um, like I mentioned earlier, um, I knew pretty early on that developing a relationship with the student Christian movement of Cuba would be a pretty top priority for us. Um, and I actually reached out to Jorge pretty early on in my time with the WSCF to kind of start that conversation. Um, it was definitely challenging because my Spanish is very limited and Jorge's English is very limited. And so it was a lot of like Google Translate back and forth. Um, but we did end up organizing one conversation just as kind of an intro to some of the history around U.S. and Cuba. Um, we brought in some folks to to speak on that. Um, and the intent was that that would be the first of many conversations. And of course, language barriers and technology challenges uh, made it very hard to to continue in the way that we had originally planned. Um, but, you know, I think the opportunity to have actually gone and walked alongside our, our Cuban siblings, our Cuban counterparts, and experienced a 
the limps, I, I recognize, you know, we didn't get to see their day-to-day -day lives in the full extent, but just, you know, what they chose to share with us, um, that was more valuable than, you know, any Zoom call ever could have been. Uh, so I think in terms of how this shapes our work moving forward, you know, we just have so much more than just like, names and faces not like these are relationships like we made friends while we were there and i feel i think about you know ariel and jorge and bea and all the people that we met and i just feel this like deep warmth in my heart and i am just very excited for you know the ways that we're going to get to continue to know each other and better understand each other's needs from a relational place you know we really care about each other and we we want to to help you know, do whatever we can to be good partners and good friends. Um, and I think that is what the student Christian movement is all about. It's about relationships and uh, friendship and building those relationships based on, you know, the values that we hold center to our work, which is reciprocity and mutuality and justice and, and equity. And so what does that really look like? Again, if we're like claiming these things as our values, like this is our opportunity to put those into practice and to really live that out and what is being asked of us. And so, it's our job to listen, and we now have those relationships um, to to really <laughs> test our ability to listen. I think and and help shape our work and um, the way that we advocate going forward. I'll just add um, my observations on the way that they are organized at the assembly that we attended. Um, people were mostly coming in groups from churches as opposed to universities, which I think is more of the way that we are uh, organized in the U.S. is by schools. Um, and so at the assembly, we had people as young as 13. Um, and that's not a university student age. Um, and we had older people as well, um, people in their 30s and um, pastors there. And I think um, the movement is very strong because those communities, people, the members of the Met Cuba are rooted in their local communities through their local churches. And I think that mm, means more longevity for those relationships um, within those communities and then between those communities. Um, whereas I think in the US, life is a lot more transient you go to university and you move somewhere else and then you might move somewhere else for a job. And so it's harder to have that rootedness at the local level. So I'm wondering how we can maybe incorporate more churches um, in our work as opposed to just schools. And something Erin and I talked about early on is like expanding our demographic to beyond just students. One, we define student as a student of any age. Um, and then two, um, opening it up to young adults, whether they're students or not, which we currently have defined as ages 18 to 35. So I think we're still trying to figure out exactly who we're targeting and how we want to be organized. Um, but I think thinking about the way that SCM Cuba is organized, we could take some notes from them as we're building our movement. Um, and I think also in our generation, more people than ever are choosing their families, like joining chosen families and making commitments there. I think that comes from contexts where there are broken relationships within families. And I think 
Americans need a lot of help practicing good relating. Um, and we have a lot to learn from our Cuban brothers and sisters and siblings uh, on that front. And I know uh, Emily mentioned earlier the beloved community that we witnessed there. And so I honestly had a sinking feeling visiting there because it's like they're able to make life work because of the relationships that they have. That's how the feeding of the 5,000 happened. One person starts sharing their food, everybody else does too. And you end up with more, you end up with enough, not less. But we really don't know how to do that. We're really bad at that here in the US. Um, that's why it's so hard to keep these movements together. And so, yeah, just thinking about how we can strengthen our community building, community organizing, um, our movement. Um, and I think our focus, which has been on relationships since the beginning, um, I feel reaffirmed in that um, as our priority for our movement currently. So, so that was encouraging to see. And hopefully we can meet up again in the future, maybe in Canada we were talking about, um, and we can be more intentional about learning strategies for, for that kind of community building moving forward. Yeah, they were so hospitable to us. I just want to say, come visit me. And then there's that sad moment in your heart breaks and you're like, you can't come to my country. I can't reciprocate, reciprocate, reciprocate the Christian hospitality that you showed me back to you. And that, right, this blockade, it's not just an economic blockade it is a human blockade it is a spiritual blockade it's an emotional blockade it's it affects individual lives more than people realize it seeps into the essence of humanity in ways that are beyond commercial yeah i really appreciate you putting it that way emily that the blockade is more than material you know it has the it prevents people from encountering one another and i think that's one hugely important piece of this whole trip is, you know, it's one thing for us in Canada to go, but people in Canada go to Cuba all the time. They go to go to resorts, they go as tourists, it's a pretty average place. Um, but for people in the US to go, I think that requires overcoming lots and lots of barriers, both material barriers, you know, trying to actually get a visa, making sure you've got all your, I don't know, weird checklist items done so that the government won't be mad at you, etc. Uh, but it also requires getting over ideological barriers of just thinking, is Cuba a country I can go to as a person from the U.S.? What do I expect there? All these kinds of things. And I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. You know, what does it mean to be a person from the United States who has been to Cuba and kind of returned back to your home country? Like, what's that sort of opening up for you? Um, how are people that you know kind of relating to that that part of your life story now? Uh, what are you kind of bringing back with you from that experience? So what Aaron had said before, the U.S. propaganda machine towards Cuba is so strong and prevalent. And I know at my little church I serve at in southern Indiana, they don't really have a firm grasp on anything relating to Cuba. And so a lot of my sharing of my time is really the day-to-day nitty gritty details, talk about the toilet paper, talk about how we had to get our visa rather than the large ideological things. It's just telling them like, what are Cubans about? Like what kind of things did we eat? Um, because I'm finding that people don't here in the United States don't really have any kind of understanding 
or knowledge of Cuba or Cuban history or Cuban culture outside of the Bay of Pigs and Castro. And they just say, ah, oppressor of the people. I know for me, um, I've just been telling everyone you have to go to Cuba. <laughs> I'm just like, did you know you can? Well, you should, because we have a lot to learn. And it's one of those things, it feels weird because I'm not usually a big like, oh, you need to like travel to this. Like there's so much privilege tied up in traveling and particularly as someone from the United States. And for me as a white person, like there's a lot wrapped up in like international travel. But like, I think the fact that we were invited and that was, you know, when we asked early on before we'd even gone on this trip, like what is like, what do you want from us? Like, what can we do to like be better partners? And they're like, you just have to come see, like you have to witness it, come and share our stories. Like, you know, tell the truth, like tell other people what you saw while you were here. And so uh, that's what I see as my role for the next few weeks and months and years. I'm looking forward to going home over the holidays in a couple of weeks and sharing with my family about my experience. I've never talked with them about Cuba. And so I'm really curious uh, to hear what their opinions are, what their preconceived notions um, about Cuba are, and to hopefully engage in some really fruitful dialogue with them about it. I feel like for me, mm where I could have the most impact is by living out a model of community in the U.S. that people can look to and say, oh, that actually works, not just in other countries, but also here, and that that's something I can be a part of. Um, and that when we're a part of these communities, when we're a part of networks of mutual aid, like they practice in Cuba, we don't need to accumulate and consume so much and take so much from the rest of the world. And we don't have to feel so threatened by examples of people sharing resources like they're doing in Cuba um, because we've seen it and seen that it is a positive thing. Um, I think we feel very threatened by Cuba's example of socialism, communism, and that's why we've tried so hard to bring it down because it really threatens the logic of capitalism. Um, but if we were able to, and yes, I think bringing people to Cuba to see that and then maybe learn from that and implement that in the US to be a part of that. But I think ultimately like trying to do that in the US and just showing people that it's possible here too um, could have a really big impact. So I think us doing the really difficult work of community building here um, and, you know, giving credit to communities that are already doing that, like in Cuba, would be very a very powerful witness. Um, and then people don't have to go all the way across the world to see an example of that. Um, but they can just look next door and be like, oh, I actually don't have to live as an individual. Um, but I can be a part of a community where we share resources and I don't have to make as much, but I also don't have to spend as much. Um, and I actually feel happier because life is actually about relationships. Life is actually about the beloved community. Um, so that's the, the challenge I feel. And I think here where relationships and our kinship structures are so broken and devastated, it's a lot bigger of a challenge to build a community. But I think that's the the task ahead if we want to if we want to make it as a society. Claire's comment reminded me that we were not just international voyeurs, but we also brought over medical supplies that the Cubans had asked for. 
um, because of the blockade, it is very hard for them to get things like tampons, pads, antibiotics, um, acetaminophen. And literally we had this massive list of things that they asked for. And so honestly, each of us came over with a, a checked bag full of medical products that um, the Martin Luther King Center in Havana has this distribution system to get it to those most in need, a lot of seniors who um, can't afford these items or just can't access these items. That's a great thing to include. Um, I mean, Claire, you were just talking about, um, you know, being a community of people who share resources, but here you guys are, you're bringing medical supplies across. Um, you're already participating in a real way. That's such a cool thing to see. Um, I guess I did have a question about the Martin Luther King Center. Um, such an interesting thing. Uh, you know, it exists as a sort of space for Christians in Cuba. Um, but I guess uh, what's always interesting to me about it and, you know, some of the people who come out of it <laughs> is how explicitly socialist they are. Um, in Cuba, obviously, it makes sense, right? It's a socialist country. Um, and Christians have kind of like a very complicated history with that particular socialist project. But I wonder what your impression of that was when you were there. I mean, you don't have to give any like big philosophical answer, but just like as a person who was there who, you know, maybe you're not very interested in political philosophy or something, that's okay. <laughs> but just what was your impression of like the the socialist part of it all and, and maybe the Christian part of it too and how they interact? I can start just by sharing. Um, I think for me, one of the things I was most struck by at the MLK Center um, a lot of their programming is centered around public or popular education. So uh, creating spaces for people to come and it's not a one way, you know, one directional uh, style of learning or education, but everyone brings their own stories and their own, you know, lived realities, which in and of themselves are, are sources of expertise. And so I think that model is really interesting because it aligns with, I think, what we hold is true in our values and honoring the sacredness and divinity of like each person as a child of God. And so when we kind of like combine the like educational piece and like the Christian values, like to me, that's such an obvious way that we should be engaging in dialogue around difficult issues and and striving to learn, which also is so interesting as a movement of mostly students who are in these institutions of higher education, where that's not usually the way that learning happens. It is very one directional and hierarchical. Um, but anyways, it's just that was, I think, one of the biggest takeaways for me um, in thinking about also how we want to do our educational work moving forward as well and how we might model it um, after some of those popular um, public education models. For those who have no idea what we mean by popular education, I really recommend Bell Hooks teaching to transgress kind of her model for uh, pedagogy and how we learn. That's exactly what it was. Something that was striking to me that was a feature not only of the MLK Center, but also of the other churches that we visited was um, kind of this business social entrepreneurship model that they had going on. Um, a lot of the churches had this program called uh, what was it? Agua Viva? Something that means like living waters, this living waters program where they have a water fil filtration system to provide clean water for the community. Um, and also one of the pastors that I got a chance to meet with was talking about all of these other ministries that um, they've started through the church, including two farms and a fishing business um, to supplement the income of the church and to distribute to families in need. And I mean, I think that's 
what Jesus was doing in trying to um, collect and distribute resources within his own community. Um, and I think not working, well, the people from the MLK Center and Met Cuba were working directly to like pass the family code, for example. So they are taking direct political action. And I think creating like, how to, how to say, para-economic arrangements that are successful, um, that people can buy into, that maybe over time with a lot of success can just kind of become maybe more incorporated into the broader economic model. Um, and so at our church, we've also started several church businesses. And so I felt kind of affirmed in that as well. Like we're heading in the right direction of um, not just a Sunday morning church, but like seven days a week. Are we providing jobs for people? Are we providing um, income assistance for people? Are we providing like sustainable products for people to use in the community? Um, there's really, um, there's so many ways to be creative about it. Um, and so I was just really inspired by um, their thriving ministries going on there. Um, so that was wonderful to see. It's really interesting to hear all of you um, respond to that question in that way uh, to kind of affirm that one of the lessons maybe from uh, a movement and a, or a group of institutions that are putting Christianity and socialism together is like the methodology and the kind of community support that's happening there. You know, it's a, a real commitment to the not just like a political ideology or project, but a commitment to the the community itself to the you know the political body more than maybe the the ideology per se and just maybe to also fill in some some stuff uh, as claire was speaking like there's a real kind of creativity in the cuban society now because of the blockade right there people have to figure out how to get by how to get money something that our group found uh, a lot as we went was that we were really benefiting from the creativity of of christians in cuba for example uh you know, we stayed at some residences owned by Presbyterian churches. Um, we were benefiting, too, from just a, a variety of folks who were willing to kind of come to the church and give their time or kind of speak with us and so on as as experts or people we could really learn from. We were able to go to different cultural activities because everybody is kind of trying to figure out, you know, how do I not just like make money off of this as like a capitalist or whatever, but it's like, how do I kind of offer something that also helps me get by here in Cuba? And there's this real kind of solidarity exchange happening there too. I guess what I'm saying is you shouldn't get the impression from Claire that all these Christians in Cuba are like secret capitalists doing a, a weird Trojan horse thing. But on the contrary, it's like a real attempt to think like, could we be economically creative such that we can actually build a, a healthy contribution in this Cuban revolutionary model, whatever it, it turns out to be like, right? There's a real diversity of opinion too on the political and economic situation that I think we, we encountered there that was interesting to see. Uh, and with all that said, maybe as we're kind of coming to the, the end of our hour or so, I wonder, could you maybe speak a little bit also to uh, what this means for the future of U.S.-Cuban solidarity for you all. You know, now you're back in the United States, the country that is imposing this blockade. Um, are you kind of coming back with energy to do something about those sorts of issues? What are the conversations like that happening either in the WSCF or maybe you haven't had a chance to get that far yet, maybe in your own kind of mind or journaling or wherever you're kind of thinking about that? Uh, what can Christians in uh, in the U.S. do to really contribute to alleviating that that condition? 
um, maybe while Emily and Claire are thinking, I can just jump in to share a little bit of what we've already been talking about and thinking about. Um, so of course there's the blockade and there's also been a lot of activism around um, dismantling the blockade by Christian groups for a very long time. So I am really hoping that our organization can get plugged in with some of those groups and learn from them and learn about the work that's already happening and how we can add our voice to that work. There's all kinds of petitions and things you can sign and add your name to um, to speak out against the blockade. There's also, you know, Cuba is listed as a state sponsor of terrorism as well, which has huge impacts um, for Cubans and um, U.S.-Cuba relations. So there's a lot of policy things that I would really love to activate our student movement around. Um, I think that's that's one thing. But then also, again, just like educating the people in our lives, like using the relationships that we already have with people, our friends, our families, others in our networks, those that are going to come to next year's conference and just sharing about our experience, sharing what we learned, having kind of similar conversations to what we've had here today with others. Um, I think that's a big part of the work too, because there is just such a, so much myth around it, so much just flat out <laughs> inaccuracies and, and untruth um, around Cuba um, that comes from living in the United States. And so as much as we can help to deconstruct that um, and dismantle those lies, I think also is really important. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with Aaron. I personally feel called to do advocacy work um, on behalf of Cuba to the United States, both with the WSEF and to see what I can do with the UCC. Um, there's a small but mighty uh, pro-Cuban voice, I'll call it, in the UCC, but I think amongst other justice issues in my denomination, I see Cuba kind of being sidelined. Um, in favor of other um, other issues, other other countries under empire. And I think that is influenced by propaganda around um, mythology of socialism and what is what did the Cuban revolution actually entail? And so I hope to do or to kind of debunk that and to provide clarity within my own denomination and my own circles of influence. I think it's such an intimidating question and there's not an easy answer or a simple solution because I think the relationship between U.S. and Cuba is not just about the relationship between U.S. and Cuba. I think it's a whole global problem. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely agree with Aaron and Emily about um, partnering with organizations that are already doing work. We met a couple of people who are from an organization in the US um, as representatives who are working in Cuba and they host a lot of delegations from the US to learn and receive education about different aspects of Cuban life and history. Um, and I think for my own community and congregation, I'd love to lead a delegation there um, with, that, with them um, in addition to more trips through the WSCF um so would love to do that in the future and i think i was narrating this tragedy to our our host in cuba that in the us we're dealing with a big mental health crisis that is 
caused by capitalism, which divides and conquers even to the individual level, our minds and our bodies. And people are so caught up in dealing with their own mental health that people really just don't have the capacity to do much more beyond that. Um, we have a lot more resources here, but people still struggle to survive and people still struggle to be healthy financially, physically, psychologically, especially. Um, and so that really incapacitates us um, and prevents us from doing more. So it it's kind of, <laughs> capitalism is like a cause of this whole situation and preventing us from solving it in so many ways. And so I think that's kind of a larger context for all of this. And, you know, there's even more there. Um, but right now, I think through the direct connections and, and relationships that we have established, like my, my friend that I met in Cuba, like I can communicate with that person about what needs we can meet. And that person is, has their own community and they can be a communication channel and we can do maybe like a sister community kind of advocacy work um, as we are waiting for the broader situation to change um, for, you know, larger policy change and advocacy work. So that's kind of where I'm at with things, but would love to hear if people have more solutions and more creativity around this. Cool. It's, it's great to hear how this has all kind of shaped your perception of the world and maybe informed it in some ways. Um, and uh, I don't know, um, <laughs> just Claire, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, it's not just about Cuba, it's about capitalism by and large, it's but it's, you know, a whole world system. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, to, to round the conversation out then, um, maybe you all could tell us just how people can get involved with the WSCF and uh, how they can go to Cuba next time. Emily's making eyes at me. <laughs> all right. So how can you get involved with the WSCF US? Um, so we have monthly prayer gatherings, which are a lovely space to join. Um, we do them on oh gosh now i'm gonna forget it's either the first or last monday of each month it's last. the last monday of each thank you <laughs> um and it's just a very informal space to come and be in community with one another share your joys concerns laments um and receive support and prayer around those things so definitely join us for those um, if you are interested in attending our national student conference, that will be happening in the fall. We're still nailing down a location, um, but we will announce that as soon as we have that information. But that's going to be in either late September or October. Um, and that's a really, really great opportunity to actually just kind of get a taste for the flavor of the WSCF and who we are and the things that, you know, uh, we're up to. And so I love our conferences. It's just such a great opportunity to build relationships and kind of deepen those already existing connections and have a space to connect with other people that are asking similar questions and just um, find community with, with others in that way. So the conference is a big one. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of like getting plugged into our Cuba work, definitely stay tuned. Uh, follow us on our social media channels. Uh, we also have an email list. I think our Facebook is friends of the WSCF USA. Our Instagram is also like WSCF.USA. Um, 
Emily. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Emily's our social media person here. So <laughs> um, you can find us on Instagram at wscf.usa. Um, you can sign up in yeah, you can sign up to our email at the link in bio, wscftrustees.org. And we are on Facebook, a group called Friends of WSCF. Yes. I would also Thank like you. to add that beyond any one particular thing that we do, just existing actually has more of an impact than you think. Um, so if you just join us for any event, whether it's conference or virtual event, I think you'll find it to be very nourishing and energizing um, in a culture where I think the mm, general conception is that most Christians are problematic and very conservative, um, have very toxic theologies. Um, I feel like that's a narrative that I believed coming in. And so just to meet other progressive Christians um, who are doing this kind of work and have a different kind of theology is so encouraging and energizing. Um, and makes me feel so hopeful that like mm, we actually exist and we're a significant you know there's a significant number of us and what gets us down is feeling like we're completely alone and there's just so few of us and we have no power but that's just not true so come and feel the power <laughs> and join us for an event we're not only queer affirming but we are queer centered and queer led it is um a safe and brave space i just i think we can never be too clear about that it's a good pitch. Um, Christians are often perceived as problematic, but some of us aren't. There are dozens of us out here. Come come join the club. Yeah, I'll say too, uh, something I found really encouraging just being on this trip with the WSCF and with SCM Canada is I think something we hear a lot on this podcast, even from listeners is, oh, it's so great that like two people are talking about Christianity in the left and like what a what a nice thing that I get to listen to it as one third person. And I think it's it's really amazing to know that there are actually organized people, groups of people, networks of people who are trying to create those connections in real life. And it's it was a huge, huge encouragement to meet Aaron and all of the other student coordinators on the trip. I think that people probably easily feel kind of isolated being a Christian and a progressive person. And like Claire was just saying, you know, it's just easy to assume that you're, I don't know, the one person in a multitude of people that will never be understood. And, and maybe that's true in your local community and, and that sucks. But you can kind of find some support, I think, with lots of other people who feel similarly and are, are trying to kind of build that capacity. So I would encourage everybody to check it out. Um, and all the folks on this call and the other folks who aren't on this call who went on the de delegation are really fascinating, interesting people. I feel like we could probably do an hour conversation with all of you about one other thing. I mean, Claire is part of this like wild church and seminary situation that we were learning about. It's nuts. You got to come on the show, Claire, again and, and share a little bit more about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Emily, also lots of amazing uh, studies, and it's so exciting to hear somebody in seminary who is a young person who is kind of being, you know, like partici a participant in solidarity in a big way. It gives me hope that maybe pastors can be good, too. That's really nice to feel. Um, love that. So I think it's it's also just a good space to meet people who are thinking really creatively about what does it mean to be a Christian and uh yeah, I, you know, always on the show, whenever we have someone on, I feel like Matt and I are trying to pump their tires and be like, yeah, you should whatever, buy this book, join this thing or whatever. But I feel like the WSCF is one of those things where it's like really for real, though, 
you should definitely join this thing. If you like this podcast, you're going to love people who are actually doing something. So uh, get out there and, and be part of it. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming on. Any last final words that you want to say? Um, last for this episode. Uh, of course, you can all come back for another one later on, but last for now. Thanks so much to Matt and Dean for hosting us. Dean was also one of the cool people on the trip. Um, so I need to go back and listen to episodes of this podcast. Um, yeah, check out my church's website, cando.org, and our seminary, undergonestem.org. Our tagline is decolonizing Christian leadership. And it's just a two-year MDiv, not three. So anyway, come check us out. We're in Minneapolis. Stop by anytime. I was going to say... How Dean presents himself on the pod podcast is exactly how he is in real life. He is not faking or posing anything. That's so good to hear because Dean's always getting accused of that, of being a fake, a fake leftist in, um, in real life. Uh, thank you both so much for the opportunity to come on the podcast. Um, yeah, Dean, it was a blast hanging out with you in Cuba and, and learning about your work. And thanks for looping us into this part of your life and would love to, to be back on the show again in the future. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you support us at uh, $2 or more, you uh, can get an early episode of the podcast every now and again. You can get access to a behind the behind the paywall podcast called The Lock-In, which we are a bit behind on. That's okay. We'll get there. And uh, you also get an invite to our cool podcast Discord channel where we talk about whatever's happening with the Pope and um, <laughs> space Marines and I don't know, whatever we talk about the episodes and other things too. It's a good community of people. Um, that's what's cool about the Magnificast is that it's not just two guys talking to you. Uh, when you join the pod, when you join the discord, it's a lot of guys talking to you. <laughs> um, truly, truly. I tell you, this is what the kingdom of God is like. All right. Um, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by the logical spoon and we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have